few weeks back, back in August to be exact, the 50-year anniversary of Woodstock hit the calendar. There was supposed to be a 50-year anniversary concert, but it didn't happen. I don't know any of the details, but the net is the show did not go on. In all honesty, I question anniversary concerts, especially Woodstock. 1969 was a very combustible time, and all kinds of fascinating circumstances pushed and pulled on this concert event of the century. So in reality, recreating something like Woodstock? I just don't emotionally believe that can happen. But I did go back, and I watched the movie. Some absolutely awesome performances. If you haven't seen it in a while, pull it up and enjoy. When the camera zooms in on Crosby, Stills, Nash... They announced to the half million people at Max Yasger's farm, this is our second gig, man. <laughs> well, guess what? My music network got me an introduction to someone who later worked with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young as a stage manager and much more. That gentleman is Glenn Goodwin. His work with CSNY and the music industry is fascinating. So let's turn on the mics and talk with Glenn. Amy, can you get the show kicked off? This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up. It's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening? As I've said before, you let people know what you do and cool introductions happen. A few weeks ago, Mike, a good friend and music buddy, fostered an introduction to his neighbor, who was the stage manager for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and much more. I picked up the phone and talked to his neighbor, Glenn Goodwin, and was blown away by his extensive work in the music business. So I'm pumped, because Glenn has agreed to tell his story on the Dogger and Muddy Music Podcast. As you all know, Muddy passed away a, f a few months back, but I've set up our portable studio here at Glenn's house, and his dog Rosie is handing off the mic to Glenn for this show. When you were young, Glenn, you were in a rock and roll band, living the dream, you then got formally drafted to visit Vietnam for a while. You served your time and came back a veteran of the war. Tell us how you got back into the music business once you, you, once you came home. Well, prior, I'll give you just a snapshot of me before I went into, to, uh, before I got drafted. Um, I was a drummer and a singer and played with my brother in a couple of his bands. And, you know, I, I'd be the first person to say I was not the greatest, but it was, you know, teenage years and finally. You're living the dream. Absolutely. And uh, I was also working at a record store, and anybody who was from the Hollywood area would have remembered a major record store called Wallach's Music City, which was a very big, it was a, it was a big deal in Hollywood, but they had a few other stores. And and in those days, I lived in Orange County, so um, I was out in Costa Mesa, and that's where that store My was. My grandma lived in Orange County. I went there many times when I was a kid. Well, I, I grew up, uh, went to high school in Tustin, which is, uh, I was the first graduating class of Foothill High School. Yeah, <laughs> I went there in 66. I graduated in 66. So anyway, we had a great time in Orange County. It was a ton of fun. And then, of course, the big surprise, I got the uh, letter in the mail to say, you're invited to... Uh, Come to uh, join the military. I'm going, okay, well, now keep in mind, small, just a small piece here, um, I had a back, uh, a back disease, an adolescent back disease, 
and it was debilitating to some degree. It happened every few years. I would have a real problem that I'd have to slow down, take medication for a few days because I couldn't really walk because my basically my spine would fuse. But my doctor had said, clearly, by the time you're into your adolescent years, this should totally be cured. So I said, well, okay. Keeping in mind, I forwarded all that to the secret, uh, the secret service, right? The selective <laughs> service. And uh, the selective service had all this on record. But when I got into the induction center, um, it was none of the letters were there. And in the end, uh, like many other people who had issues, uh, right. weren't, weren't really qualified to be on the front line. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. We ended up uh, getting drafted and going off to, uh, to Fort Ord for basic training. Spent two years there and, uh, and went to Vietnam for a year in 69 and 70. And I missed Woodstock. Damn it. I would have been there, guaranteed. Damn right. <laughs> uh, but in the end, um, you know, I, I, I did have an experience that was pretty cool. One thing I would have to say that I'll never forget is I was able to go to a Bob Hope Christmas show. That's cool. Yeah, it was so cool. It was Connie Stevens was singing along with uh, Neil Armstrong, who literally had just landed on the moon six months before. I hope he wasn't singing. Uh, no, he wasn't. <laughs> well, that would have been interesting, though. And he had, I think, the Lesser Lannan Orchestra, and he just had a couple other great singers, and it was a fantastic experience. Uh, I'm so glad I got to do that. And then, um, and then, eventually, after a few more months in uh, in April of '70, I got got out. And fortunate enough, I was not in a position of a lot of action thank the lord i was in a staff position and but i did did a lot of the things that i promised myself to do and that was to to just work my butt off and just focus on getting myself out by doing the best i could do yeah Made, I, have, I have another friend that i think is similar skill if you can type it helped oh yeah well yeah i have a buddy who was over there in vietnam and he he could type and that helped him a lot well let me just tell you my typing story because i have one as well <laughs> i was because of my back and basic training they had realized that they made kind of a mistake on their behalf to draft me in the first place so they decided to take me out of the combat arms uh military occupational skill and put me into into training for being a clerk then they also sent Good. me. Then they also sent me on to personnel management school, which is a deluxe clerk, like radar and mash. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> had a lot more, a lot more responsibility, a bigger gig, and all that. And and fortunately, when I got to Vietnam, so here's how type typing saved my life. Damn right. Uh, after I get to Benoit and they're putting us on the trucks to go off to where we're going and I was going off to the first infantry division and we all knew if you get over there they whatever you're doing as a job that you were trained for if they needed guys out in the field you're gone so of course I'm freaking out and I get into a formation in front of this headquarters company at in the first infantry division and there's a guy with a clip and he's looking and you know he's looking at all the trying to match up people for the positions and he looks around, everybody goes, hey, anybody here know how to type? And I got my hand in the air so high, you won't even believe it. So, and he basically brought me in and I got this job with the, with the 
First Infantry Division, I had a really pretty high-ended job as a clerk. And in the end, when I left, I ended up getting a Bronze Star for meritorious service for Good. for helping Wonderful. for helping out process the entire First Infantry Division as a part of a team of about 20 of us. So it was a pretty interesting experience. Thank you so much for your service. Appreciate I appreciate that. It. We all appreciate it Thank very you. much. Yeah. So you get out of there alive and safe, mm-hmm. and you come back and... You still love music, right? You know, I loved it. I I actually came home and did, for a short period of time, stayed in Southern California, which is where, in Orange County, which is where at that point in time my family lived. And um, I did go back and do some record sales initially, and I stayed in Southern California about six, seven months. And I picked up some, you know, like I said, I worked at a couple of record stores. Um, and then I, I worked at one called Licorice Pizza. And anybody who's been in Southern California, it is a was a famous kind of classic, you know, hippie-ish record store. But it right. had all the good stuff in it. Like the the it was a great group, and there were stores all over Southern California. I decided I was going to move to Santa Cruz, where my brother lived, and so everybody had become so much better as musicians in the two years I was gone that I just said, there's only one way I can do this, man. If I want to stay in it, I probably just ought to go behind the scenes. And so I ended up working basically as a roadie with my brother's band. Wayne Goodwin is his name. And uh, at the time, he was working with an offshoot of, well, kind of a, it was about two or three members of the Moby Grape, which is a band. Yeah, damn good. Absolutely. Really good band. And um, Jerry Miller was was our guitar player. We had Don Stevenson was playing drums. Peter Lewis, I believe, was playing for a short period of time, who was actually Loretta Young's son, but was actually one of the members of of, uh, Moby Grape. And um, so that's kind of what I, I just fell into it. Now, I'll go back and tell you a story about as I left Vietnam, is a big deal. So I'm getting sent these tapes, these cassettes from my friends at home with, with uh, like radio DJs. In those days, there were, there were no commercials. They were doing this FM, classic FM format, which lived for many years. And they were sending me like two, three hour tapes where all my friends were listening and it was great. And we got all the new music and, you know, it was cool. And I really thought to myself, you know, when I get back, I'd love to do this. This would be fantastic. And then so I also felt after hearing some of that music, I kept hearing this really cool new group called Crosby, Stills and Nash. And it was like, wow, I want to meet them when I get back. So, you know, how cool is that? So, again, I think the spirit our human spirit, if we drive ourselves to something that we want so bad, we can get it. So, Absolutely. So I, when I moved to Santa Cruz, I worked with my brother's band and ended up meeting a guy one night at a club we just after we were finishing the show and we're around the bar and he's, uh, you know, I, I got to talking to him about what I, you know, what I would love to do and I'd love to be a DJ. He says, you're kidding. He says, I'm a disc jockey up the University of California, Santa Cruz. You're more than welcome to come on up, and I'll teach you the whole thing, how it all works. I said, sure. So after hours, I went up, learned how the turntables, all the machinery, everything worked, went out and got my third-class FCC license, and I ran into another guy through this same kind of group, a guy named David Bean, who was the program director for a radio station in Carmel called KLRB-FM. And he said, he called me 
a few weeks later and said, would you be interested in being a weekend jock and doing like a Saturday, Sunday show? I said, sure. Damn right. So there's the first one. I nailed that. Yeah. And then again, through our contacts, while I'm because I'm still doing the roadie stuff, I ended up running into another guy named Mac Holbert, who ended up, not me not knowing this, but within a year or so, he not only became a great friend, but he also became my partner because he was the tour manager for Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and I became the production manager. I love it. So, um, but... There were steps in between, of course. Right. So I met Mac in the bar at one of these one of these events, and I told him how I, you know, love to meet Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He says, "Well, listen, I work for Graham. Do you want to?" Um, and Graham owned a property just a few miles north of Santa Cruz in a town called Davenport. He said, "Well, how'd you like to meet Crosby and Nash? They're going to be up in San Francisco. If you want to come along, I'll introduce you." And I said, "Sure." So I'm knocking down two. Damn right. And then, and then when '72 came around, I was I moved up to the city, worked with a band uh, as their road manager called Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys. Not many people will know them, but he they their first album was produced by Jimi Hendrix, and they were managed by the same manager that represented Jimi and. And I worked with them for about a year and a half in the city. At the same time, I was meeting with Graham and talking about moving into that group. Well, one, one, uh, they're on tour. Crosby and Nash are on tour. Right. And they're coming through San Francisco. Now, they, live, they both lived in the Bay Area. It just so happened they were coming through the city and they were playing at the Civic Auditorium, a Bill Graham-promoted uh, event. And... I got wind that there was a roadie that was not really doing as good as they would like him to be. You know, they really were looking for somebody who can maybe pick it up or notch or be a little more hungry or whatever it was, right? So I didn't think twice about how I, I wanted to figure out what I could do. So I actually showed up first thing in the morning while they were setting up. And I went in and I recognized, you know, looked around and saw some issues that were happening. One of them was an odd one. It ended up that uh, usually there's a large stack of towels when the bands come off the stage so they can wipe the sweat off their brow and all that stuff. Sure. There were no towels. Somehow or another, somebody screwed up. So I looked at at Mac and I said, do you think I could get the the, uh, keys to all the rooms of of the roadies? Because where are they staying? They're at the Miyako Hotel, I mean, over in Japantown in, China, in San Francisco. I said, perfect. So I took all their keys. I drove and went into each one of their rooms and took all the towels out of all their rooms. Room service didn't and, stop you. Or you no, were quicker than I, them, I guess. I guess. And I get back and I just have a couple of big stacks of towels. And I think I won everybody uh, to some degree. And, uh, and Mac had told me, he says, you, you are going to be perfect. He says, we would like to pick you up for this tour, and we're going to get back on the road from San Francisco in the next couple of weeks. Well, it ended up, unfortunately, they wanted to hire me, like I said. Right. It ended up, unfortunately, David Lindley, who was in the band, got sick, and they had to cancel the back end of the tour. But they did say, this is an open invite, and we want to have you back if you want the gig. Now, so... When you come back, yeah. are you working for Bill Graham Presents? Or? No, no, I'm working directly for the band. Okay. Directly for the band. I'm looking, actually, Crosby and Nash were my employers for, uh, I don't know, 
probably almost eight, eight and a half years, maybe nine years. They were the way Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young are broken up, and that's a little different now. But in those years, back in the early mid seventies, um, Graham and David would have their own manager. Well, actually, I guess really it was maybe 73, 74. That was the way it was working. They'd have their own manager. Neil would have his own manager, and Stephen would have his own manager. And they'd have their own roadies, and it was kind of like their own individual deal. Because okay. it's an interesting story, and, and uh, I recently just found this out, but I'm not surprised. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were named that uh, with a reason. They did not want to have a name like an Aerosmith or whatever. Their, their whole objective was that they wanted to have the freedom to go out and work on their own. Makes so, sense. So yeah. they kept, they used their last names and kept them. So, and, and that's what they did, of course. All of them had their own solo careers, and, and it, it went on like that for many, many years and still is. So I want to step back just for the audience to understand. I'm sure most of them do, but Bill Graham was the power in, in well, the Fillmore West and then also the Fillmore East, and right. then there was Winterland, but he was a huge power in the music industry. And if you ever want to understand the whole music scene of San Francisco and beyond, I highly recommend Bill Graham's biography. It's one of the best music books I've ever read. It's I love really, that book. It's really good. I can tell you that the next step in my career with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and actually Young at this point, the biggest tour in the history of the music business took place in 1974, which was Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Right. And they toured, uh, did 31 shows, saw over a million people. It was the very first all, pretty much mostly all stadium tour. Yeah, I, I went to David Crosby's documentary a few weeks ago, and they had clips from those. And I mean, yeah, it's it's the first big stadium tour, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, there in that in that documentary, there is. I'm in it. I'm sure there's, but it, nobody would be able to tell except for me and my family. But I walk <laughs> right behind the band as they're getting ready to go on stage in Wembley. All right. And now I'm barely visible, and the only person I think that would know would be me. But but you know, I, I just and I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I know I was right there. <laughs> anyway, that that tour was incredible. That was uh, probably one of the one of the biggest milestones of my career that took my life and changed it on that that tour i was a stage manager and i worked okay. for david and graham and tim drummond who was their bass player and then we had uh guillermo giacchetti who worked for steven and we had a guitar tuner ben lesco and then john talbot took care of all the neil young stuff um guillermo also took care of well, all the keyboard rig and all that for and joe lala and russ uh -huh. kunkel as well okay so um so I think if in our prior visit, stage manager and production manager were probably, you wore that hat more than some others with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young? I, I particularly Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. That was the only CSNY tour I did, but I did do two or three. Two Crosby, Stills, and Nash tours, and several Crosby and Nash tours, and uh, in those jobs, I was a production manager. The first kind of my first entry level gig on a big tour level was, I mean, we had two hundred and some people on that tour. Oh my goodness! And it yeah, was huge uh, entourage. And back to Bill Graham, that whole tour was basically produced by Bill Graham, and it was an interesting web of promoters across the country where. Promoters like 
I believe Concerts West was involved and Beach Club out of Florida and Cellar Door out of Washington, D.C. Whenever we would come into those areas, those promoters would join up with Bill ah. to do the events in the areas that they kind of represented. Um, and But Bill was the overall guy. He was on tour the whole time. And he is a powerhouse, man. He was amazing. Yes. He yeah, was he, amazing. Yeah, he, he was. I lo- Like I said, I love that. It's one of my favorite music books. Yeah, it's a good one. So... Can you share with our listeners kind of the responsibilities of a production manager slash stage manager? You know, like you said, 200 people in the entourage, but uh, there's lots of stuff you've, you've got to take care of, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, in that tour, my uh, key objective in 74 for the CSNY tour was to just make sure that David and Graham and Tim were taken care of. We worked as a team. No question about it. I mean, we we all, uh, when the rehearsals began down on Neil Young's ranch, and uh, it was pretty awesome. Neil had built a gigantic redwood outdoor stage in the middle of the, in the middle of the redwoods, and it's uh, it was just amazing. He had homes peppered all over his. At that time, I think it was a seven hundred acre ranch. It got as large as eighteen hundred acres, and it's all in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's just stunning. So um, we would set up every morning together as a group with these the uh, the roadie team, Guillermo and John and myself and Ben all worked as a unit. We we were looking out for the interest of all the band on anything that happened on that stage, and uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. We worked together. It was crazy and big, and uh, you know our our, op- our I can't say our opening acts because that would be a bad thing to say. Our co-bills and stuff where people like Santana, the Beach Boys, Damn. the band, uh, Joe Walsh, um, Joni Mitchell, oh uh, boy, who else? Well, and Jesse all, Collin. All A-listers. Oh, yeah. And Jesse Collin Young, of ex of the Young Bloods, which was, yeah, he, he was our opening act on all our shows. And then the whole show culminated at Wembley Stadium in London. 100,000 people. Pew. And it was the, the this was the A bill here for sure, opened with Jesse Colin Young. Then it was, I can't remember if it was the band first or Joni Mitchell first, but it was the band, and Joni Mitchell with Tom Scott and the L.A. Express, and then Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Damn, that's kick ass. Yeah, pretty that's cool. Kick ass. So you're still working with CSNY, and but you're with a bud, and you're crossing the golden. Golden Gate Bridge, and you have an epiphany, right? Right. This this is interesting. After a couple of years, we done we had done some Crosby Nash show uh, tours. We did at least one Crosby Stills and Nash show. Also, I worked with Peter Paul and Mary as their production manager on their eight year reunion tour back in '78, and we just had been hiring these travel agents that were uh, agencies that just were not doing the job right. We wanted to have detailed information and right information about staying at the right places, making sure the timing of our flights and everything worked out for us. So we decided uh, we were going to start putting a hand into working on this on our own. So one day we're driving across, to your point, across the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's Mac Holbert, the, the person I mentioned earlier, Stan Johnston, who at that point was uh, one of our key sound guys on the road, and myself, and we're in Mac's truck, and uh, we were just thinking about a name. Uh, well, it just came out. I think Mac might have actually said it, but Air Apparent, A-I-R Apparent was the name. I like it. Yeah, and it, we just thought it was cool. So 
what we did is we hired um, an agent to represent our interests, and she and we went to a existing agency in the Transamerica Pyramid Building on the 32nd floor, and our person worked there to help us support us while we were on tour. But we would organize it. Stan and Mac and I would get together. We would pull the flights we wanted. We would get all the whatever rent-a-car companies we wanted, the hotels we wanted to stay in. And then we would basically give it over to, um, God, I'm trying to remember, uh, Maria. Yes. Maria Ismail was her name. She actually was uh, Michael Shreve's girlfriend in those years and i had met her through my first wife stephanie and that's who we hired to be our agent and she she did a great job and so when we're on the road we're kind of you know president vice presidents of our own little agency which was really only for us at this point we created this great itinerary that had more information than you know anybody would ever provide we made these little books that were half size so people could put them in their in their bags or in their you know and then nobody threw it away because the book had a logo on it and a calendar and all the contact names and numbers and it's just we just thought it through those are collector's items well they are but you know the funny thing is is it's become uh it, it had become and i think it's still uh the that is what everybody uses now. We, I think, created something that's really carried on throughout everybody. That's cool. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it, you know, because in, in the early years, we just get like, you know, three pieces of or four pieces of paper stapled and right. something. And most of the information was either wrong or confusing or whatever. This was one page. Everything you'd ever want to know about where you're going to be on that one day, all the way to the nearest restaurant, the nearest hospital, you know, backstage phone numbers, all the stuff, you know. And in the end, what um, eventually after I decided I wanted to stop touring, we uh, I went and found, uh, well, I didn't even have to find them, the, the Bernstein family who were in the, the cargo business. They had a company called Rocket Cargo, doing quite well. And they, they funded us to actually open the agency in, in um, L.A., and actually, uh, at that point, uh, Stan and Mac kind of dropped off because they were staying in the city and doing what they were doing. And I just took it and worked with the Bernsteins to, to you know, develop it along. And we built this thing in a machine, man. I mean, it was what I did is I went around after I decided to stop touring and I just went around and called all my road manager and production manager friends and said, look, air parents open, man. We know this. That's great. And we ended up with Warren Zevon, the Eagles, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, Van Halen, Queen. Fleetwood I mean, Mac, I believe, right? Fleetwood Mac as well. Yeah, we had a list that just kept kept on going, you know. Yeah. And I, I, was it the Eagles, our local, uh, you know, Don Henley's right here? I think he had the Eagles too, right? Yes, we did. Yeah, his management company, we had had a couple of his acts. And so uh, his management company, I think, at that time was uh, – Frontline, I believe, Irving Azoff. Oh, yeah, Irving yeah. Azoff, yeah. yeah. And uh, he was, I think it was Irving. I don't know if Howard Coffin was there yet, but Irving was yeah. like the key guy. But we, you know, had a good run, and it was, for, it went on literally. The agency itself, just in the last three or four years, stopped. And we started in 77. Yeah, so you sold your part, or? Well, I, I got, you know, we made a deal. Okay. I, I, my deal is, is that, I had initially hoped that we were going to build this into an entity that did travel, 
freight, production, video, all the things that were related to the industry. And the dream was a good dream. And I don't know if anybody's ever accomplished that objective, but what had happened is the agency part got so big. So we had like, you know, 25 agents at one time and that was taking over everything hard to grow, right. you know, yeah, other, right. in other places. So eventually I went off and went back on tour actually with Stephen Stills for a couple, for a year or two. Uh, when I mentioned uh, to a friend that I was going to be interviewing you and that you built a rock and roll travel agency, he, he got, he said, well, so they need special treatment? And I said, I turned to him and I said, okay, so you're telling me that if a rock and roll guy walks into the front of a hotel, everything's not going to get thrown out of kilter, everything, all security is going to be cool, all this. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, okay, yeah, maybe you're right. There are some issues with a, a traveling ban. I mean, think of Frank Sinatra. He can't walk in the front door of a hotel That's very correct. easily, right? Right. Now, I mean, were you also responsible for, or did the... The freight insurance. I read read something about that in one of your uh, situations. Where well, we we the, the freight guys would have we'd have the the rocket cargo guys would handle all that. Okay. They they took care of the freight piece, okay. and and it, and, and it sometimes is very significant, particularly if you're traveling overseas. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a you have to build a carnet, which basically means you've got to take every piece of equipment where it was built. Uh, the size, the weight, all that stuff. And, you know, when you're going through customs in Japan or in Canada or in Europe, particularly England, which is real tough, they can be real sticklers. So that we left to those guys because they were kind of the subject matter experts. Um, On the travel side, though, you mentioned something that's funny. I mean, you know, Uh, when a band shows up. Yeah, the security. The the hotel and all. We we are going, we usually pre do all of the things we think we need. I mean, things that we did, which were common from everybody's perspective, is we would never put the real names on the room list. We make right. a, and uh, we wanted to make sure we made names up, you know. And <laughs> and uh, the other thing is, is that, you know, it's it was just a very it's very it's a big deal when you bring these guys into a room and everybody freaks out so we try and make sure we're getting it all organized we do it all our pre-production work involves getting in touch with all the hotels to make sure they know who's coming and all that and we do a lot of pre-work to make sure that we did a lot of pre-work to make sure that the rooms were where they were supposed to be and they were all held so when the band came in I wouldn't you know it wouldn't pull a uh, well We'd hoped anyway we'd be totally prepared. It never was, but that's why with us being the owners of this small little agency, we could get people to just, they'd go right to town. They'd go, here we go, they're here. And we would go in if there were problems, we'd deal with them immediately. Good, Good. yeah. Good. So you kind of had your own security team, or you? Well, you were, we had people. Our guys actually helped handle security. We would hire them when needed, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, all the pieces and parts of these these things are intricate, particularly when you're dealing with bands that have the kind of exposure. Right. I mean, the people, the hangers on and stuff that would kind of show up, or the the other folks, the fans would be everywhere. I mean, you know, so yeah, yeah. we had yeah. lots of. Yeah, they ha- they tend to find out what's happening and where things are happening. Some yes. some of the dedicated, committed fans, uh, oh, gr- groupies uh, and stuff. Absolutely. So, 
MTV comes along and the whole video thing explodes. Sure. So you kind of shift directions a little bit about around this time. Is that fair to say? I did, but you know, can I interject one little Crosby Nash touring thing? Hell that, yeah. That's related to Texas. I think you might. Re- oh, yeah. I love it. So there was a club here called Mother Blues. And it was a very popular club for many, many years. And we were on tour with Crosby and Nash. I believe it was in 75. And in the middle of the tour, the band felt we needed to stop somewhere and go rehearse some new songs. So we took four or five days off. And somehow or another through Atlantic Records or whatever, they got to Mother Blues and... We parked our semi right along the wall next to Mother in the parking lot. I can I know it's not even here anymore, but and we unloaded just the band gear and went in and we bought out or I guess Atlantic Records bought out the talent for five days, and we went in on our own. Oh, this is so cool! On the QT, nobody knew we were there, and it was fantastic. I mean, small small That's stage. Great. I don't know. It was about a four or five hundred seat place, and so what happened is. Uh, couple of us guys on the crew me being i was pretty out front about it i said guys we've got to open this thing up for a night man let's just not announce it let's don't tell anybody and let's just show up and and they if people come fantastic well and i figured i did somebody's gonna leak it but somebody will yeah and it did get leaked and we ended up with a line like around the block a couple of times the fire marshal eventually cut the the door, stopped it. And it was one of the most fun shows we had ever done. I mean, David Crosby is like playing and two feet away from him right. are the people in the front row yes. at a table, you know? See, and, and that's and that's where he would have started. That's how he would have started. I mean, that's great. And it's it, intimate. It was so exciting. And the band just was so engaged because they were so good that night. Yeah. Yeah, because the fans are right there. I used to love it that I don't know. I doubt they still do it, but the Rolling Stones before they would hit hit a tour, they'd mm-hmm. do that. They'd sure. pop into, you know, they'd work a deal and they'd pop into some local, you know, little mini establishment and cut a gig. And these people would be sitting there going, "What the heck just happened to me?" Yeah, Jimmy Buffett does this. I don't know. He used to, but does the same kind of thing. I mean, there's something you get. From an artist's perspective, that's got to be so rewarding because it's instant gratification from people you can see their eyes and their 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 whole you know and any reaction they have is right there. You get to look at you're within feet of it. You know. Well, you always hear when when you go to a a big concert, you know, you almost always hear the band will say, "Well, turn up the lights so I can see the people," because the lights are just coming right at them. They they can't really see very much of the audience many of the times from what i understand it is true and then plus in fact you know the, the way when you get into the bigger shows they're from a security perspective we yeah. build out a barrier yeah. and we try to keep it as close to the stage as possible but you know we'd have to have security up there so in case right. somebody tried to get up on the stage and do something stupid right we were covered so yeah they're a little removed in those bigger venues and we did a lot of them so anyway i just thought i'd throw that that's in. that's a great story yeah yeah all right so now MTV and videos, and you and you shi- kind of take a shift shift directions in the music world. It was an interesting time because I had a baby. Uh, my wife and I, my first wife and I, had a little girl, who, by the way, will be thirty nine in about a week, which is kind of crazy. Um, it happens. Yes, it does. I don't know how, but it does. <laughs> uh, and 
I wanted to get off the road and she wanted, my wife wanted me to get off too. And I just felt it was the time. So music video was just starting. Uh, Bob Pittman was out kicking uh, MTV around. Uh, he was kind of the lead dude there. And they all, I think they started in New York. They didn't even have it in LA at the time. And because I had so many connections in the business and I had left Air Apparent at that point, um, I was getting calls from a lot of people to come and go over and join their, their music video companies because of the people that I knew. And um, it, it wasn't like a zillion, but it was enough to know that this is an industry that's getting ready to kick in the, be kicked in the butt, and I could be right there. So I was. That's what happened. And I ended up going to work for a fellow named, well, two guys, Jerry Kramer and, uh, oh, yeah. and Gary Rockland. Two, two guys, it was Kramer Rockland in those days, and they were doing, all, uh, he had, um, Jerry had been involved with Michael Jackson's, what was his big video? Uh, Thriller. Thriller. He did, he was involved with Thriller and Michael Landau, or uh, John Landau, and all those guys had put that together, and that was kind of, I was coming in on the tail of that. They were doing some a lot of work with A&M Records. A, a, uh, Jeff Aroff, who at the time was the president of, I guess he was a lead A&R guy. Could have been the president, I'm not sure. But he was a big dog. And then, um, so we did Sticks, We did Police. We did uh, Brothers Johnson. We did The Carpenters. And I got involved uh, initially as a stage manager because we were doing a lot of more video than we were doing film. So that was kind of my early on getting into this. And then I get a call from Bruce Cohn from the Doobie Brothers, who was the manager at the time. And I had known Bruce and the band for years. And he said, um, we're going to do a multi-camera concert special at UC Santa Barbara could you help me put it together? And I'm working at this point as a contractor for Jerry and, and Gary. Yeah. And I went, well, sure. And then I got a call from a couple of other people who knew that I had this relationship and they were all, it was, there was some talk about trying to push me over to some other companies and stuff. And in the end, you know, I'd built a familiarity with, with, uh, with Jerry and Gary and, and we ended up doing it. And I, uh, ended up as, I guess, Associate producer, I can't remember what my, I think that was my title on that one, uh, or production manager maybe. That was one of the first multi-camera sh shoots I'd ever done. The other one, the very first one I did, goes back to when I worked for Stephen Stills. I did a show for Showtime with him. Uh, Going Platinum was a series. Neil Marshall directed it, and it was, a, it was up in California at a venue called the Concord Pavilion. And I was a production manager on that show. So that was kind of like, I'm starting to feel like this may be a good place to go, right, you know? Right, And then Kramer and uh, uh, and Rockland both broke up. And Jerry, you know, I kind of went away and did some other stuff on my own. The Doobie Brothers actually offered me an opportunity to work in their management office in L.A. for a short time. Good. So I ran the L.A. management office for the Doobie Brothers for about a year and a half-ish. And um, then the band announced they were going to break up. This is when Michael McDonald, this yep. was back in the early 80s, I guess it was, is when that happened. And and then, but then Kramer kicked his company back into gear and asked me to come join him. Now, just before I ended up going to Jerry's, I got an independent project through Warner Brothers with a, a small 
up-and-coming act, well, woman, I should say, named Madonna. Oh, I think I've heard of her. Yeah, she's somebody we might have, you might have heard of her for sure. And she uh, she needed to do a video. She had borderline, the album had come out. She did an, a, a real, about a $120-something-thousand-dollar video with Borderline, but they had Lucky Star that they wanted to make into kind of a dance thing. So Warner Brothers had a little bit of money. They figured this would be great over in Europe and all that. So we did total low budget. We called in favors everywhere, got a free camera uh, package. We got the A&M soundstage for next to nothing. All of us did like three things at a time because the budget was $9,600. No way. And and we shot it on 16 millimeter and it ended up becoming a gigantic hit. It was the best money Warner Brothers ever invested. And what's the song again? Lucky Star. The Lucky Star. And okay. if you cannot... So we can it, check that out on YouTube now, probably. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. In fact, I have a... Which I've never got. I probably should grab this, but there's a platinum video, which kind of like a platinum album uh, uh, that came out because they did that video and maybe Borderline. There was like two, maybe... Well, uh, three or four videos, and that thing just sold like hotcakes. But what happened is her image came straight i mean what she dressed like what she looked like is is exactly what lucky star was about so for a year or so maybe at least probably at least a year she was in all the bumpers for mtv doing just little snapshots out of the video and stuff it was the best investment warner's ever made oh man and self-promotion all over the place absolutely and for that it was the first video i ever really produced uh, officially, I mean, I'd done others, but, right. but as a producer. So then I just went off and running, man. Jerry Kramer was doing, um, he did Hot for Teacher, uh, which I was a co-producer yeah. on for, with Van Halen. Yeah. Um, he had just finished Jump with Van Halen. I don't know what it was the other one he might have done. He might have done, he did Panama as well, I believe. Oh, Panama, yeah. And then, uh, they might have done their ver- that Pretty Woman, did they do... I don't think they did that oh, one really? as a video. I don't that, remember. It may have been one. It's a great I, song, but yeah, yeah, maybe they didn't do the video. And that was off of 1984, I think the album was. I believe that was what it was called. Like and that. Hot for Teacher was just this odd yes. song. And, and, of course, we, we basically played it. I mean, we, we, I mean, as far as the way it was set up and the production design and everything was on a school. And uh, we did it at a high school and uh, shot at a high school in, in Hollywood and it was fantastic. I mean, just we had a giant group of people working on it, lots of kids, these, you know, great actors, small ones, and the women that we had in the video yeah, as well. Yeah. And and um, and that was great. And we ended up doing, uh, I worked with Rod Stewart, with, uh, with John Fogarty. We had a list of stuff because Jeff Aroff, who was a big ally of ours, went from uh, Warner, went from A&M Records over to Warner Brothers. And, and Jerry and, and Jeff were great friends. And he Jerry had been doing great work for him for years. So we just ended up, you know, ending up in a pocket that was pretty cool, you know. All the Warners uh, acts, at least we had a shot at them. We weren't winning all the stuff. but Right, we you're pretty, vying for it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, your big one was, uh, or, you know, the one you got most recognized for was the Lionel Richie work, right? Lionel Richie was actually, the, I started my own company after working with Jerry for a year and a half, two years on the second run, and then I made the decision to move on. Now, the interesting story about that is the week I started the company, we got a a Barbra Streisand music video, 
And then a video for a band called Wasp, which is basically Blackie Lawless was the lead singer. He came from the New York Dolls, and he had a history as a heavy metal. That's where his space was. And I ended up doing like five projects with him. We just, for some reason or another, hit it off well, and we did a couple of, we did a long form, did some other stuff. It was great fun. And, uh, but anyway, and then within six months of that, we, uh, I got a call from Marla Winston, who was working for Ken Cragen at the time, and Lionel was managed by Ken. He also, Lionel also managed um, Trisha Yearwood and uh, Kenny Rogers. So they, uh, Marla recommended me because I had done a project with her when she worked for Kenny Loggins, folks. It was a live satellite uplink that I had done when I worked with actually Kramer Rockland, and it was a very challenging project. We had to broadcast live from his house in Montecito to about about a third of the population of Japan because he because okay. he had just won uh, the Footloose like the yeah. the national thing it was like a holiday thing that was on in Japan so I'm like I'd never done a satellite broadcast like this ever and it was the most nerve-wracking thing but it was brilliant it worked perfect and it Mara, was live it was well that piece was we oh my goodness yeah that's the longer story of that we Went up to his house in the morning, shot a music video of Footloose with his band doing kind of a lip sync thing. On in a, He lived in this beautiful area. And then we finished that. They cut it locally. And we did the actual uh, broadcast at like 2 a.m. So Fuji television executives were there in, the, in his living room. And they had this award and all this stuff. And that was when it all went live. And I will tell you, there's nothing... I mean, if you've ever done this, many people do it now. It's a whole different world. But then it just, you know, it was nerve-wracking. Yeah, I just going to say, you were pretty taught at that that point. We were. And and the whole team did a great job. And Jerry's group and all of it. So in the end, Marla went to, to, when she went over to Ken's, she said, if we're doing this big video, Lionel, we should talk to this guy, Glenn Goodwin. He's pretty good. Really good, I hope she said. But anyway... I got a call, and then I went over and met with Ken. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I I met with Ken for about two hours, and and then he told me that Stanley Donnan, who was an Academy Award-winning film director, was going to direct it, and he wanted me to meet him because I guess he felt our meeting went really well, which I thought it did too. And so I went up to Stanley's house up in the Hollywood Hills, and we just sat by his pool out there, and we talked about the video, and, and I... Pretty convinced as well that that meeting went good, and so I get this call. Living the life. Oh yeah. Well, this was an amazing chapter. I mean, it was, you know, up and down. It was a interesting. I was a, a nervous wreck for a while because how it worked is I put the budget together, very expensive budget. I'm not going to deny it. It's a few hundred thousand dollars, actually a little more than that, but in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. And we brought in some of the top people in the business, in television, music video, and film, to do the effects of the the gimbal, of him actually walking on the ceiling. And and Stanley Donnan had directed uh, Royal Wedding uh, with Fred Astaire when Fred Astaire walked around the room. Yes, so, yes. So Fred... Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so Lionel and... Small uh, world. Yeah, exactly. Well, Lionel and... Lionel and uh, Stanley worked on the end of the Olympics in L.A. Uh, in 84. 
Oh, or was that? Or maybe it was a, an Oscars show, actually. But anyway, somehow they connected, and they talked about this, and and Lionel had his song coming out. So, so they just they kind of crafted it up, you know, and then they had to make it, right? And it's right. this was not a cheap production. It, it was impossible to do it any other way than spend the money. So I put this budget together. I'm excited. I'm thinking this is probably going to be one of the biggest things in my career ever. And uh, the way it was contracted, it was actually, I produced it, but Stanley also got a co-producer credit the way it was contracted. And, uh, you know, even though really he was the director, that's what he did. And I ran the rest of the logistics and all of it. So I get a call about a day or two after I've submitted my budget. And they say, well, Marla calls me and says, well, Glenn, I'm sorry, but we've got, we've, we've looked at these numbers and we're going to have to uh, bid this out to somebody else just to see how the numbers fly. And I'm going, oh, uh -oh. I'm thinking this is not good. Well, yeah. who did they pick to do that? Jerry Kramer. <laughs> the guy that taught me how to budget pretty much. Right. I so, love it. So all the, how I found out is that the guys that I were bringing on as cameramen, as production designers, they're calling me saying, hey, Jerry just called and said he's bidding on this too. Ah, I went, oh, my God. Small world. So it ends up we submit our budgets, He and it's $4,000 off. I think he was, I don't even know who was less. It was, but four grand in the scope of the budget of this thing. Is a pittance. It's not that big of a deal. And I had the advantage of already meeting Stan and, and Ken. So so the problem is that this was a funded project by HBO was putting a lot of money into it because they were going to do a making of as well. And I was coordinating producer on that too. So that was another add-on. And they were putting a lot of dough into this thing. So they had an air date and they were going to do the making of the video and then pay it off with the video at the end, right? So so there's no changing in in our production. We, we it's just like you know it's getting our pre-production is getting eaten alive, but we still have the same delivery date to deliver this big production. Right. So for days I'm not getting calls back, and I'm kind of like, uh, my wife had to tell me, look, you have to calm down. It's going to happen when it happens. You can't be bugging them, and I knew that. Had a bottle of champagne in the refrigerator, just sitting there waiting, right? Ready to go. Yeah, and she uh, and I heated her deal. She says, "Just go. F you've got a video with Rod Stewart or whoever you're working with. You got some other stuff going on. Whatever your videos are, just get back into those and and do those and just kind of take your mind off of it." And I did. And then about six or seven days later, they called and said, "It's yours." Good. That's great. Well, the trip is, like anybody knows, in a big production. The great thing is, is hearing you got it. Yes. And for about two hours, I was on top of the world drinking the champagne. And then I realized. A lot to do. Now I got to produce it. And it was intense. I don't think I slept for a month. I mean, I can't wow. say. I mean, not. You know, I got. But you were tense. Very few hours. Yeah. It was around the clock. It was seven days a week. We had to meet the deadline. There was no question about it. And um, it was, there was a lot of tension internally. We had stuff going on. We did have a fantastic group on our team. It's just the nature of pushing such a large production into such a short production window is going right. to have problems. And we had a few. But, but the thing is, I always tell people, you know, 
push through. Look at the objective. Your end goal is right there. You still got to attain it. Right. Make sure you attain it. And that's what we did. And you won that that particular video won a People's Choice Award. Yep. And an American Music Award, right? And, and other awards in some film festivals and stuff, sure. too. Just some miscellaneous ones. I think New York Film Festival, Chicago Film Festival, you know. It was a, it, it was a brilliant opera. This is one of the rare opportunities to see a music video take a song that maybe wouldn't have been a hit. Mm-hmm. But the music video pushed it. We were on the, I think we were on the top of the charts at MTV for like 10 weeks or something. That is great. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Great. I love it. So this is a fantastic career, and you're not done. We're going to mm-hmm. zoom forward here. I, I know you can't tell us a lot, but you're you're working on a potential movie, right? Yeah, I've been in development uh, uh, years ago when I toured with Stephen Stills. Um, back in 80, 81, I ran into a guy. This was my last piece of being with the CSN organization and, and the bits and pieces. So I ended up uh, being the tour and production manager for a European and stateside tour. And so we're, I, I'm trying to remember this, and I, I can't remember when I met Michael, but I think we were in rehearsals in Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken. And Michael Sturgis, who was a guitar player in the band, singer, songwriter, super talented guy, uh, it took about 15 minutes for us to realize that we're going to be friends for a real long time. So cool. him and I are, we travel around the world and cause more trouble than most, but, uh, and had fun, you know, and we always got our job done and everything was fantastic. So, you know, we continued our relationship as buds for years and I worked on a project or two with him and helped him along with some of his stuff and we just continued to he's one of those kind of guys where even if I didn't talk to him for a year or two or three which was rare it was that long you pick up the phone and it's like you never missed a beat you know so he calls me up about 12 years ago and tells me about this film he wants to do and it's a true story about about part of his life and it's a music based show and it has to do with a lot of music in the 60s and i can't really get into a lot of the detail because we're still in a very sensitive area now right, you probably right. can understand um but we're excited about the people we have on board graham nash is going to be working with us on the soundtrack which is i can say that and that is true damn good uh, we're excited about that I can, it's after 46 47 years we're still doing stuff together which is cool um I'm one of the key producers. Michael Michael is not only the guy uh, who was involved with the band, but we have the original member of the band that, that was involved. Uh, he's on board with us. And um, we've got Michael, who is going to co-produce the soundtrack with Graham. And Michael is also a co-writer on the script. And um, we have been pitching it around, and we're getting some pretty pretty exciting results. It's one of these things where we think we're going to see some major daylight coming soon, and our hope is to be in production with this thing sometime. We were hoping this year, but it's certainly going to be next year. That'd be uh, great. And it's a, it's a feature, uh, but it does have it's a true story based on a true story, which is right. which is awesome. Uh, if I I wish I could tell you more. But I, I bubble with excitement because whenever I get into this thing, I can't stop talking about it because it's <laughs> it's so much fun. 
You'll, you'll keep me posted, right? So oh, yeah. Let listening. me tell you, you know, and maybe the next one we'll have is a more detailed discussion about uh, about this film and, and how it's how it's moving along. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Glenn, this has been fantastic. You got any uh, anything that pops in your head to kind of a wrap up story or are we going to be are we heading down the road? I I don't know. There's I mean, you know, what what will happen is as soon as we turn the mics off, I'll go, oh, I remember another, uh, you know, right. people who know me know that I got enough stories and they are true. So that's always fun. You know? Yeah, right. Um, but anyway, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Rosie's been a wonderful co-host with me and they didn't bark through any of the show. Yeah. And yeah. I, and even she's probably never heard these, some of these stories. So really? there you go. <laughs> oh, I hear, I see your ears perking up. Okay. There you go. Well, Glenn has been fantastic and uh, let's stay in contact and we I'll keep my uh, audience updated on your activities as well. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much, Doug. Adios. Okay. Take care. Glenn's story was fascinating. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm hopeful that he gets the backing he needs to produce the movie. I'll keep you posted on the movie's progress. A couple weeks back, the two-day Clapton Crossroads concert event came to downtown Dallas. We attended the Friday night event. Clapton and his supporting cast did an acoustic set early on the show. Other artists that performed that night, just to name a few, included Sonny Landreth, Gary Clark Jr., Peter Frampton, Jimmy Vaughn, Doyle Bromwell Jr., Cheryl Crow, Billy Gibbons, Albert Lee, Bonnie Raitt, James Burton, Keb Moe. In addition, for the second time in a year, I saw the Marcus King Band. Man, that band puts everything on the line. They truly kick ass. When you get a chance, check any and all of these artists out. Till next time, go see some concerts and have a blast.